Welcome to Thoughts from Home, your conservation podcast from the National Conservation Training Center. We're located along the Potomac River in historic Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and are home to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Throughout this series, we'll be talking with experts, authors, and a variety of other guests to bring you the most up-to-date information, events, and happenings here at the National Conservation Training Center. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. NCTC is celebrating its 25th anniversary. In this episode of the Thoughts from Home podcast series, NCTC's director, Steve Chase, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service historian, Mark Madison, reflect on the past and speculate the future, moving into NCTC's next 25 years. I'm Mark Madison. I'm the historian at NCTC and We're celebrating a little bit of history at NCTC this year. It's our 25th anniversary. We opened in 1997, and I wasn't there when we opened, but I'm here with the director of NCTC, Steve Chase, who was there at our dedication and and actually even a little before. So, Steve, if you're cool with it, we'd like to ask you some questions about the last 25 years at NCTC. That sounds great, but let me ask you a question first. When did you start at NCTC? 23 and a half years ago. (laughs) Well, that's pretty good. Yeah, I get most of it. (laughs) Historians been on the job for 23 years. There's a lot of history. (laughs) Yeah, and it's fun to do some local history. We're usually going around the country. But historians like to start at the beginning. So maybe you could fill us in, Steve. When did NCTC open? And what were the first classes you taught out here? Okay, well, maybe I'll go back a little more before that, too. Um, I joined the NCTC organization. Back then, it was called the NETC. I joined them in February of 1993, and I was fortunate to be able to get onto the design team that had been working for a few months and almost immediately i started going to these design meetings that were held at the architect's office in downtown dc the company is now called smith group back then they had a different name but i find it's easiest just say smith group nowadays and we would sit in these um, big conference rooms and literally talk about every detail of the center. The vision was for us to be able to design a training campus for conservation professionals. We wanted the campus to reflect a conservation ethic And every aspect of the design was seen through the lens of conservation. That process went on until the very end of 1993. And that's when the design was put into a bid package. And by the late spring of 1994, we had a contractor on board and it was a large general contractor that um, would be able to do all aspects of the construction, all 
various disciplines of the construction um, because the actual design had all those disciplines. So as part of that team, the design team, besides the Fish and Wildlife Service people, we also had civil engineers, structural engineers, electrical engineers, just anything you can imagine. So when we hired that general contractor, they were basically agreeing with us to be able to give us a turnkey campus at the end of a three to four year period. So one of the first things we did with that contractor is we set up a meeting and it was actually up in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, uh, between the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Army Corps of Engineers, who um, would serve as our construction managers, just a sidebar on that. The Fish and Wildlife Service was very capable of managing construction projects, but individual projects, large campus-wide construction projects were far beyond our ability. So we hired the Corps to do that. And so we sat down with us, the Corps and the general contractor, and we did a partnering agreement, which basically articulated our collective vision for how the construction would go. And that was a really good start to the project. The construction actually began in the summer of 94. We did a groundbreaking with a number of VIPs, including Senator Robert Seabird um, in the fall of 94. And then we went full bore on the construction. And that went on for the most part until the spring of 1997. And it, it was in May of 97 when staff were able to come on to the campus and get into their offices. We then worked through the summer on a lot of operational planning. By then we had brought on our guest services contractor that was Airmark and our facility operations contractor that was there for maintenance and you know all those types of fiscal infrastructure projects. They also were part of Aramark at that time. For the past three years during construction, our really capable training staff had been working very hard to develop a comprehensive curriculum that we could open the center with. And we also work with partners like the Conservation Fund on our vision that not only was the NCTC a place for Fish and Wildlife Service training, the home of the Fish and Wildlife Service, it was also a home for the American conservation community. We felt and still feel today that it's really important that uh, we bring in as many different people from different organizations and conservation as possible so everyone can learn from the diverse experiences and perspectives that people have. And so in October of 1997, we actually had a grand opening. Again, all the VIPs came. We um, One of the few times we've emptied our dining room of tables we set up the dining room as more of a theater. It actually holds about 500 people in that format. 
and um, we had a big celebration. We also began doing open houses for the community. Uh, the community was extremely supportive of us through construction, and we also were very, very careful to take community concerns and input in mind as we built the center. I remember right when it was announced that the NCTC would be at, on the Hendricks farm, the local Shepherdstown newspaper's headline was, we want to be good neighbors. And by the time we had that grand opening in October of 97, we were getting really good feedback that the work we had done with the community was a best practice on how any large institution that would do a lot of big construction and you know basically change the community a bit how they come in and work with the community is very important and people felt that the way we did that was really really effective so once we got rolling in october we started to have guests and now we're 25 years later and maybe 350,000 participants later, and we're still going strong. <laughs> so a couple interesting things you said. Originally, the name was NETC, the National Education Training Center, and then right. you switched it to National Conservation Training Center. The other thing is one thing that seems to strike these 350,000 visitors is it doesn't look like a typical government facility. What did you try to do at NCTC to give it kind of a unique design look? Well, we wanted the campus to fit into the landscape. We wanted it to look like it had always been here. We wanted to take the architectural vernacular of the area and instill that into our design. Thus, we have buildings that look like barns in the area. The materials we use for the buildings, um, not always, but lots of time, came from relatively local sources. We didn't want a big perimeter fence with barbed wire on the top of it. <laughs> oh. we, we stuck with farm fencing. We didn't want to be seen as a faceless government installation that didn't welcome people um, to the center. And I think we were very successful with that. Of course, with the pandemic the past few years, we haven't been able to ask people on site, but that will change as the pandemic gets further in our rearview mirror. Well, a lot of the people that have come out here have actually come out in addition to trainings for events. Right from the beginning, you put on some wonderful events like Fire and Grit and Land Ethic Conference. What were some of the more memorable uh, events you've been involved in at NCTC? Well, there have been some related directly to Fish and Wildlife Service, mm -hmm. and there have been some w working with partners. From the very beginning, we established Fish and Wildlife Service communities of practice, and they could be centered around things like geographic information systems, although maybe that's more of an outdated term now, or things like um, single species conservation. The piping plover is an endangered 
shorebird that we actually have a community of biologists and land managers who come here every single year just to share their experiences, share their successes and failures so we can be as effective as possible in protecting that little bird. We had a large event here with the National Wildlife Refuge System that brought all of the primary refuge biologists to the campus. And that was an amazing week where we had a couple hundred people from all over the country talking specifically about uh, the role of biology on our national wildlife refuges. So that was neat. On the other side of the events, you mentioned the Land Ethic Conference. That was the first of several history-based symposia that we had on campus. The land ethic one was focused on Aldo Leopold, and we successfully were able to bring together all of the Leopold scholars, members of the Leopold family, organizations that were influenced by Leopold and his land ethic, and federal land managers from the Fish and Wildlife Service. And they all came together and we had a wonderful week talking about the legacy of Aldo Leopold. A few years after we opened, we worked with the Orion Society that publishes Orion Magazine. And together we put together an event that perhaps is the greatest gathering of American nature writers uh, that's ever occurred. And we had dozens of very significant uh, writers and authors who joined about 400 participants. And we all spent a week together having readings, keynote speeches, various breakout groups on conservation topics. And it really was an extraordinary event. It also served to bring all these people together who a lot of them probably didn't even know who the Fish and Wildlife Service was. And after that week, we had a network of writers and um, conservationists from around the country who knew about the NCTC, who knew about the Fish and Wildlife Service, and um, realized that we all have a lot of common ground on what we want to get accomplished. And for years after that event, we were able to draw on many of these um, significant voices in conservation to come back and participate both in our courses and in other programs that we were doing. So those are a few of the ones that I can think of. Actually, I'll add one more, Mark, in 2006, the year after the book Last Child in the Woods was uh, published, we had a what I call a seminal event here where several hundred people came together to talk about the issue of children no longer engaging with nature. Children sitting in the house playing computer games all day and um, we looked at the impacts on the health and the future of conservation that this change uh, was causing. And I, I dare say that was the event that really sparked 
a movement in conservation around connecting people with nature that's going very strong today, 18 years later. Yeah, those were important events. I mean, as a historian, I can't imagine we could ever pull together the equivalent of Wendell Berry, Peter Matheson, kind of the, the early writers of the environment, and then Bill McKibben, kind of our modern Carson. Yeah, it was Barry, Lopez. Barry Lopez. It was an extraordinary <laughs> gathering and incredibly inspirational. But you mentioned Last Child in the Wood, youth. It's a good segue. One of the things NCTC's done in the last 15 years is introduce youth to natural resource careers and, and the Fish and Wildlife Service. Talk a little about that, Steve. Well, after we have that conference back in 2006, I, I have to commend the administration that was in place then. That was the second term of the George W. Bush administration. They were very, very engaged in this connecting people with nature issue. And after the election in 2008, the new Obama administration shared that concern, but they went a bit further and they said, look, if we're not engaging youth in what we do, if we're not seriously engaging youth in conservation, there is a very dim future for not only our agency, but for the entire conservation community and most importantly, the land and the wildlife and every living thing that's on that land. So the Obama administration requested funding in the president's budget for youth engagement. And um, we were fortunate enough to get a significant increase for that work that resulted in a total reorganization of one of our education outreach function that went from more of a training only orientation to an orientation where not only are we training fish and wildlife service people to best engage young people, but we're also directly engaging young people both at a national level and at a regional and local level. Now, the refuge system does outstanding work engaging young people at the local level, but then at the national level, there really wasn't a lot. So one of the things we did is we ended up here at NCTC partnering with a group called the Green Schools Alliance, and we put together a pilot program called the Student Climate and Conservation Congress. The short name is SC3. And that turned out to be a very successful way to bring a diverse group of talented high school students here to Shepherdstown for a week for leadership training, for dialogue about conservation, and then training to give them tools to go back to their community and engage both their overall communities and their young peers in conservation. And that program went on for about nine years. An offshoot of that was we focused in on our tribal partners and we put together a program working with the Bureau of Indian Affairs and some other federal partners, a program we call NICALC. And 
it's a tribal version of SC3. And that's just an, an awesome, awesome event that has brought in tribal youth from all over the United States. It could be Alaska, it could be Polynesia, could be the Southeast, the Southwest, just everywhere around the country. And these young tribal folks came in and they were just incredibly inspiring to all of us. And that program continues today. You want to talk a little briefly about our DFP program for college-age students? Yeah. Another thing that NCTC worked on during those youth engagement years was the fact that it used to be recruitment was done in a very simple way. A few fish and wildlife folks would head out to a job fair and they would have very informal dialogue with uh, young people that might be interested in jobs, but, but that would be it. And lots of times it didn't result in necessarily in getting really high potential young people into the service. So we kind of expanded that engagement with a focus on trying to build diversity in the service. We started going out to universities, talking to them about the real way you can get a federal job instead of just going on USA Jobs and scrolling through jobs. And we also thought it was really important to build some new hiring tools that we had authority to build through the Public Land Corps Act. Yep. And we initiated a program we called the Directorate Fellowship Program. Again, primary purpose was to build diversity in the service with young hires. And what the program did is we would reach out and um, hire using partners on the outside of the service. They would hire a group initially, I think it was about 60 young people. And each one of those young people would go to a 11 week fellowship, either at a National Wildlife Refuge, a fish hatchery, a uh, ES office, headquarters, even NCTC. And if they did a good job in that 11-week fellowship, then they got their degree, either an undergrad or a graduate degree. They would be able to access jobs in the service um, non-competitively. And that's been an excellent final point in a progression of trying to get people interested in the service. You start with little kids out in the field, you get them engaged with conservation, then perhaps some of those high potential kids end up in the SC3 program or the NICALC program, and um, they get inspired there, they go to school for conservation or any other field that supports conservation, our conservation mission, and then finally, they get into the DFP program, which gives them much easier access to getting a career position in the service. Yeah, it's a good pathway. So the reason I'm even here is because NCTC is also home to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Museum and Archives. 
which didn't exist before NCTC. Where did you come up with that idea? Well, there's always been a few places in the service focused on history. There's a couple of National Wildlife Refuges with significant museum collections, both in the Midwest and on the East Coast. Our fisheries program also has the DC booth, historic fish hatchery, and they have a really cool collection of fisheries objects and documents and photos from fisheries history. But there was never an overall initiative for history in the Fish and Wildlife Service. So early in the 90s, a group of service people from headquarters and from the field, typically more senior leaders, put together kind of an ad hoc group they called the Heritage Committee. And that committee would meet occasionally to talk about ways of protecting the history of the service and protecting the icons and objects of the service. And when the NCTC program came, started bubbling up, the Heritage Committee thought that the NCTC would be a great place to be the focus of these history programs. So when we designed the NCTC, we thought it was super important to have a history theme across the campus where our students could learn from the incredibly resilient, devoted people from the past who um, addressed really difficult conservation challenges, oftentimes with very little resources to do it. They did whatever they had to to get the job done. And we felt that those were good lessons for our current people to learn about. So it made sense in the design of the center to build a small museum. And the best way to have museum exhibits is if you build an archive that's associated with the museum. So we started putting the word out as we had heritage committee meetings. And when we opened that fall in 1997, we had a brand new museum that told the story of American conservation and how the Fish and Wildlife Service fit into that history. And we had our first few boxes of artifacts that people started sending us and they still send today. I think you probably get a box a week, right? At least, at least. <laughs> it, it's grown to 500,000 items. And yeah. it's, it's a premier research archive. People from Ken Burns Production Company to President Historian Douglas Brinkley use it. It it grew probably even more than you could have guessed <laughs> back in the early days of it. And it also led... The Heritage Committee you mentioned also led to our first Retirees Association, yeah. which grew from, what, 15 to 2,500 members now. Mm -hmm. So it's Now, it's, I'll tell a quick story for the listeners, although Mark has heard it so often, he's going to roll his eyes. <laughs> um, the first three boxes we got were from the son of a service lifelong employee, Phil Dumont. And we got those three boxes in about 1995, and we put them in a safe place and didn't really touch them. After we opened the center, we put those boxes up on a counter in our new archive area, 
and uh, cut open the tape and open the boxes. And there were three, they were filled with files, manila files with documents. As we went through the documents um, or the folders, we opened one folder and we started leafing through it and there was a map. And interestingly enough, that map was one of the first surveys of the first National Wildlife Refuge Pelican Island. And it, it was a really cool thing to get. It's a really cool thing in our collection, but it also showed the way the service tried to protect its history in the past. Those files came from the guy that's called the father of the National Wildlife Refuge System, J. Clark Sawyer. When Sawyer retired, uh, Phil Dumont went in and grabbed all of his files and put them in his files. So it was kind of, if it wasn't for people like Phil Dumont thinking about our history and ensuring that at least some of the files from a retiring service person don't get just thrown into a dumpster or the incinerator, that's a good thing. And those files very easily could have been destroyed and instead he saved them. His son sent them to us after he, uh, Phil Dumont died. And we have one of the original survey maps, and it's amazing. There are dozens of stories like that that have happened since. And thanks to people like Mark and his curatorial staff, they work closely both with families from the service and colleagues who have really important documents in their personal office collections, and much of that material comes to us. One really cool thing that Mark was able to get from a guy named Al Gardner. Well, maybe I'll, Mark, tell us about all the things Al Gardner gave you. <laughs> well, we had, we got amazing things from Al Gardner going back to the early biological survey in the 1880s. We got the only flag that we ever knew the biological survey had. It was a flag commemorating World War One that flew over Blackjack Pershing, our most famous general in World War One, down uh, in front of the Capitol. We have all these glass lantern slides. We have a picture of the early biological leadership that looks like an outtake from Gunsmoke or Deadwood as they're uh, in Death Valley doing an expedition. It's just amazing stuff. We have old notebooks and and we could go on and on about the treasures of the archive. The most important thing is we've also integrated into our training. Nobody comes into Fish and Wildlife Service without knowing our 151-year history and how they fit into it and how they can build upon it. That actually segues into my next question. Steve, taking a balcony view, big picture view, what do you think the most important things NCTC has done? to support the, the service mission? We've done a lot of courses, a lot of events. What are some of the things that stand out to you that's been really important? I'm just giving that a little thought. I think one thing that comes to mind right away is before the NCTC, there were pockets of training in the service. And we had a couple of long-standing academies, but generally training consisted of perhaps people converging on the double tree at Stapleton Airport in Denver and spending a few days doing a training class. The service never really looked at 
investing in its employees as a high priority. With the MCTC opening, that investment in our people was very apparent. And after the MCTC was open for a couple of years, the notion of employee development and training being crucial for our people became institutionalized. So at the highest level, looking at the, the issue of the impact of MCTC, to me, that might be the most important thing. Yeah, you know, we did have training, obviously, before NCTC. Sure. There was Fisheries Academy and Refuge Academy that kind of rotated around. But it seems to me like the leadership training was something NCTC kind of innovated. Talk a little about that. Yeah, when we opened, we kicked off with a class for every supervisor in the service. And boy, I don't remember how many weeks of this one-week class we did, but we did a lot of them. It was called Impact. And Impact brought people together from all over the country to talk about the importance of leadership, both currently for the service and in the future. So I remember going through that class uh, with a bunch of people from all different programs. After that, the service had, had a couple of leadership programs from the 80s called the mid-level and the upper-level leadership training program. Those were not bad courses. They were uh, pretty good. But now that we had NCTC as the home of the service, we thought, Building new and more robust training programs on leadership was really, really important. So we started in 2002 with the first cohort of the Advanced Leadership Development Program. That program continues today. Um, I was in that first cohort and... In subsequent cohorts, there are other members of the service directorate. So the program has produced a number of people that are now in leadership positions in the service. But we felt after getting that program going, we needed a logical leadership training ladder. And so we started with some more basic leadership courses that anyone could take. Then after they took those courses, if they were interested in pursuing more leadership training, we created the Stepping Up to Leadership program that was made up of a lot of group activity, a lot of feedback, uh, shadow assignments with leaders, and then folks would leave that program going into mid-level leadership across the service. And then ALDP was intended for GS-13s and 14s. It was very intensive. Lots of tough programs like the human element, but also a job swap, at least in the early years, and then a 60-day leadership detail. And I can just tell you, in my case, my job swap was uh, to be the refuge manager at Cape May National Wildlife Refuge for a month. And the Cape May manager came to my job at NCTC. And I had a blast at Cape May, small refuge with incredible resources. 
places that I never would have imagined. Old growth white cedar forests, just amazing. And then for my two month detail, I was fortunate enough to be the assistant regional director for external affairs up in the Northeast region. And um, I had an awesome experience there, made a lot of friends up there. We got a lot done and it really, really helped me. So between those experiences and programs like the human element, I got to say that for me, and I think for many people that take ALDP, like you, Mark, yeah. um, it can be a, a life-changing experience to go through that program. And programs like ALDP have been noted in the federal government as possibly one of the best senior leadership prep programs in the federal government. Well, maybe that's one of our most important contributions. We're we're a concrete, literally, investment in our people in the service. And yeah, and I think they do recognize that. And I work closely with Subtle. It's a great uh, leadership course. And I went through ALDP and it's challenging, but but life changing. Well, we've spent a lot of time looking at the past. Let me uh, wrap up looking at the future. What do you see coming to NCTC in the next 25 years? as regards our technology, our training, our, our needs. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, um, <laughs> I have a number of thoughts related to where we're going to go in the future. The primary thing is, how do we ensure that the training we're doing best serves our customers in the field, both in the service and in other organizations, but primarily for the service? We do that by staying in close touch with the various programs and always being ready to modify our training curriculum. Because of the pandemic, we've learned a lot of things. And while the pandemic was a horrible time and two years is a long time, we did get some benefit. In the past, it was very, very difficult to engage our training folks in developing remote learning. Of course, there were always exceptions where people were interested in doing it, but most people were so busy with their classroom stuff that they couldn't really focus. The pandemic forced them to do that, and man, did they deliver. Just amazing numbers of students monthly over the past two years that are involved in our virtual training. So as we slide back into more in-person training, I think virtual training and training based on emerging technologies to be remote or emerging technologies that can be used in the classroom are going to be really, really important. The entire workplace of the service has changed because of the pandemic. People are working remotely more than ever. People are teleworking more. There's a lot more flexibility for that type of thing than there was even five years ago. And I think we have to realize as the Fish and Wildlife Service that our younger colleagues that are just coming into the service have a different expectation on what the workplace is. 
and how the workplace can be most effective. There were people five years ago that said, people telework, they're probably not working. Well, I'm here to tell you, the staff of NCTC worked even harder when they were at home than when they're on campus. So there's no question that we get incredible productivity from people to work at home. That said, I have a vision here on campus that we want MCTC to be a vibrant campus community that's made up of our guests, our staff, and our contractors. And that's an important part of being the home of the service, that we have these three groups of people intertwined together on the campus. And that's what makes NCTC a magical place. So we're looking at how do we balance virtual learning programs with our on-campus programs. You know, I talked about various technological tools. One of the things that I've been very interested in recently is the continued growth and emergence of 3D video and VR technology. Certainly, there's no replacement for hands-on training in the field. Yeah. We have a fisheries class here this week. They've been out in the field three full days. There's no replacement for that. But using these new VR technologies can actually bring a student to a place say an oil spill or a wildfire, and they can learn safety issues, they can learn and see various management tools that might be used for those types of issues. And I, I think there could be big potential in that type of thing. The other thing about technology is generally the education community is a number of years ahead of the federal government technology wise for learning tech yeah. and we need to do a better job of understanding what those emerging technological tools are than our colleagues in the education world both in say high school and in universities what kind of tools are they using and would those tools work well here at MCTC? So I think we need to stay on our toes. We need to be nimble and always ready to adapt and how we approach our training, how we approach the use of technology. And when we plan, it used to be a strategic plan is usually a five-year affair. I think any strategic planning that we do really needs to go out 10 years and consider some of that emerging technology. Well, Steve, this was fun looking at the past and speculating about the future. I do have one last question that occurred to me, just an easy one and a short one, and that you've been here more than 25 years working on this and, and working in facility operations, our education outreach, our creative resources division. Is there is there one highlight that comes to mind? I'm sure you've had many, but that sticks in your mind from being out here the last 25 years? Well, I'll tell you a personal highlight. I When I was selected for the position as director, of course, the decision was kept 
confidential for a time, but when we were finally able to announce it, we do staff coffees here. And the staff coffee one day was down in the Creative Resources building. There were probably about 60 staff members there. And um, Nate Hawley, who's the division manager for Creative Resources, announced the new director and he announced me and people went nuts. You know, and I, I don't look at that as building up Steve's ego. I look at it as someone who has worked at NCTC and worked their way up and worked a number of different jobs can actually become the senior leader of the organization. And the the reception that I got from the staff was just incredible. And I'll never forget that. Well, that's a great positive note to go out on. So this was really a fun look back at the last 25 years. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to the National Conservation Training Center podcast series. If you have feedback, thoughts, or stories you'd like to share, contact us at nctc underscore podcast at fws.gov.